ಶ್ರೀಹರಿಂ ಪರಮಂದ ಉಪದೇಷ್ಟೀಶ್ವರ ವ್ಯಾಪಕ ಕಾರಣ ನಮ್ಯಹಂ So we are studying Aparoksha Anubhuti, a text on Advaita Vedanta, uh, written by Shankaracharya. We had completed up to verse number 15, and we're going to start with 16, verse number 16. Aham eko pi sukshmascha. ಅಹಂ ಏಕೋಪಿ ಸೂಕ್ಷ್ಮಾಕ್ಷಿ ಸದವ್ಯಯ ಜ್ಞಾತಕ್ಷಿ ಸದವ್ಯಯ ತದಹಂ ನಾತ್ರ ಸಂದೇಹೋ ತದಹಂ ನಾತ್ರ ಸಂದೇಹೋ ವಿಚಾರಸೋಯೀದೃಶ ವಿಚಾರಸೋಯೀದೃಶ what is the process the path of inquiry that we are going to take up it starts here in the 16th verse the path we are going to take is this that we are going to discover the self which is one aham eko one subtle sukshma the knower gyata sakshi the witness sat pure being abhyaya unchanging and get conviction in this to ascertain this beyond any doubt tadaham natra sandeha this is the kind of inquiry that will proceed now now this is not the inquiry this is just indicating the lines of inquiry before explaining this let me tell you something in general in advaita vedanta there are three things that we do there are three things to keep in mind first disidentify yourself with anything that is finite that is limited anything that is limited anything that is an object of knowledge disidentify yourself from that that's the first step we'll see know yourself as the witness of all objects as the pure subject know yourself as unlimited infinite and how we are going to do that of course that's the process we will we'll start today but that's the first step to disidentify ourselves from anything that is an object and that is limited number 1 then the second step comes the second thing to keep in mind in advaita is this thing which we have disidentified from the the world of objects and limited things this pure subject the second step is to see it as the infinite brahman existence consciousness bliss which the scriptures speak about which upanishads speak about pure being pure consciousness and bliss satyam gyanam anantam brahma infinite existence and consciousness this subject is none other than brahman and brahman is the ground of the universe from which the entire universe springs so this is a second step to know yourself as brahman 
And then comes the third and final step, the third thing to keep in mind when we study Advaita. Having known ourselves, recognized our, ourselves, intuited ourselves as Brahman, now look up upon this universe of changing things, of objects, of limited things, and recognize everything in this universe as you yourself. They are not separate from you. The entire universe is not separate from you. Now you see how interesting this process is. First, we begin by separating ourselves from everything in the universe. Second, we recognize this separated entity as the infinite Brahman. And third, we merge the universe back into ourselves, into Brahman. Everything in the universe is in the third step recognized to be I myself. You are everything. An enlightened person would see it in this way. That I am everything in this universe. Not that I am separate from everything. That's just the beginning. Swami Virajanandaji, who was one of the presidents of the Ramakrishna order, has written that wonderful spiritual manual towards the goal supreme, Paramartha Prasanga. Whatever he learned in his entire struggle as a monk to realize God, all of that he put down in points. One, two, three, four, like that. And a little book towards the goal supreme. He says, watch this carefully, he says the entire universe is presented to my consciousness. Either I am none of it or I am all of it. Why should I identify myself with one body and mind? Why only this? So the difference between an enlightened person and a person in ignorance is the person in ignorance thinks he or she is this one particular body and mind and everybody else is separate. There are other people, other things. Here is a world, a world of action and ha a happening world separate from me. That's our worldview. The enlightened person's worldview is all of this is me. Not in, not poetically, not in the sense of, you know, it would be nice to be everything. <laughs> not in that sense. Not as, not as rhetoric. Really, that's the conviction of the enlightened person. It's equally true to say that none of it is me. All of it is an appearance in the reality that I am. So anyway, three things to keep in mind. Now, as we go along in this text, we will see first we are entering upon the first stage. That is, disidentifying ourselves with all objects. The body is an object. The mind is an object. Thoughts, identity, memory, they are objects. They may not be gross objects like this, glass, but they are subtle objects. So to disidentify ourselves with all that is objective, all that is finite and changing, that is the first stage. It will start now. But remember, that's not the whole of Advaita, whole of non-dualism. After all, if you separate yourself from everything in the universe, you have not come to a non-duality. You have come to the observer, the witness of the universe, and the duality also. The entire universe is still out there. So this is the first stage. It will continue from here to, I think, the 33rd verse, yes. Up to the 33rd verse. Who am I? The pure consciousness witness. That will be found out now. The actual process will start. And it's a, a thrilling ride. But keep in mind, it's the, just the first stage. Then the true nature of that pure consciousness will be deliberated upon from the 34th verse 
onwards, we shall see the, the falsity, the nature of appearance of the entire universe in that pure consciousness. The pure consciousness which we will find here will be found to be infinite without limit after that, after the 33rd verse. That portion will continue up to the 88th verse, verse where with the second and third stages. The infinitude of our true nature and that entire universe is nothing but an expression of our true nature. That will continue from the 34th to the 88th verse. After which will come a philosophical detour that's several months away. So that's long distance away. Into the nature of Jivan Mukti. And finally, at the end will come a 15-step process a 15-step program to recover from the addiction to the world which we have. Uh, so, to establish ourselves in our true nature. That will be at the end. So that's ahead of us. Now we are in the first stage. What does, the, what does Vedanta claim we are? Aham eko api. I am one. And sukshma, subtle. Subtle here is used in a general sense. You see, the Vedantic idea of the human personality is uh, trichotomous, threefold. What do I mean by threefold? In very general terms, there is a gross body here. What you see is the gross body. And what you experience within, which nobody else sees, your own thoughts, memories, identity, personality, that's called the subtle body. That's the second aspect of our personality. And then the real you, pure consciousness, existence consciousness place. What Vedanta claims is the real you or real I, the real us. So that's the final uh, part of the human personality. Now, Vedanta claims that is the real us. The other two are just coatings. Other two are just dresses that we have put on. The gross body and the subtle body. In our ignorance, all that we are aware of is the gross body and the subtle body within. And that's what we think we are. And Vedanta is trying to educate us to see that we are not that. So sukshma here, literally it means subtle, but it does not mean the subtle body. It means in comparison to the gross body and the subtle body, the real self is subtler, even subtler. It is not an object of gross perception. You cannot see it. You cannot even into you, can, you cannot even see it with your inner eye. You know, like thoughts, feelings. Even those are not the real self. In that sense, subtle. Now there are two words, jnata sakshi. Very important words. One will have grasped, would have made a big step forward in Advaita Vedanta if one can appreciate the meanings of these two terms. Jnata Sakshi, translated as Jnata means knower, Sakshi means the witness. We are both. But what is the knower and what is the witness? We need to know this. We need to understand this. After a class on non-dual Vedanta, I was in Santa Barbara in the, over the weekend, in the Vedanta temple there. On Saturday, there was a class on Atma Bodha, self-knowledge. And uh, after the class, a lady asked exactly this question. What is the difference between the knower and the witness? So we need to understand this. It's pretty simple actually. 
what we understand about ourselves right now is the knower. You are looking at me, you are the knower, you know me. You are listening to my words, you are the knower, you know me. You know your own thoughts, our own thoughts, feelings, our identity, we know it. This is the knower. The one who is sitting there and looking at me is the knower. The one who operates the mind and the sense organs is the knower. And that's what we normally think of ourselves as a knower, jnata. That's our general idea about ourselves. I know and experience the universe and myself, this body and mind. That is the knower. Vedanta tells you that's just your apparent self. You are that. It's not that you are not that, but you are something deeper than that. What is that? You are also the sakshi, the witness. In reality, we are the witness, the consciousness, which is the unchanging witness of the changing body-mind. And which, in association with the body-mind, is the knower. Let me repeat that. The unchanging consciousness, which illumines every thought, emotion, idea of ours, is the witness. Those of us who attended the Drigdrishya Viveka class, in the very first verse we saw, the world is form and eyes are the seer. Eyes are the seen, mind is the seer. Mind is the seen and the witness is the seer. That witness is Sakshi, is the real us. Now, the knower is also us. It is the witness under the limitation of the mind-body. So this, these two differences have to be understood. When I hear something, um, when I uh, taste something, see something, I am the knower. When I read something and understand something, I am the knower. And the consciousness, unchanging consciousness, which enables me to do all this, is the witness. So I am always the witness, and I function as the knower. In our state of unenlightenment, we don't understand how we are the witness. The enlightened person understands his or her own witness nature and also clearly sees the functioning as the knower. The knower is our apparent self, the witness is the real self that bears reputation. The knower, jnata, is our apparent self, the witness is our real self. Another distinction, two distinctions I'll make between the knower and the witness. The witness consciousness is not changing, is unchanging, unflickering consciousness. It neither sets nor rises. The knower consciousness, it's the same witness consciousness functioning through the mind and it is subject to change. How it is subject to change? Well, I did not understand Vedanta before the class. Now I understand Vedanta. So the knower has changed, the knower has known something. The knower has to change to know something. If you want to know what is there in the Vedanta class, the knower has to come to this class and sit and listen and think and then know. So the knower always changes. The consciousness within it does not change, but the instrument which it uses, the, no the mind, that changes. It has to change to know things in the world. So the knower is subject to change, the witness is not subject to change. And the, the knower uses instruments of knowledge. To know something in the world or in the body, we must use, number one, the mind, and number two, the sense organs. So the knower uses instruments of knowledge. 
the eyes, the ears, the tongue, the skin, nose, five sense organs, the mind itself, the inner organ of understanding, feeling. So these are instruments used by us when we are the knower. But the witness, the Sanskrit word is evocative, sakshi, sakshat ikshateti sakshi. It sees directly without any instrument. We'll go deeper into it, just now to give a taste of what it is like. How do you know your own thoughts? With what instrument? Don't say with the mind. How do you know the mind itself? The mind is shining in the light of the witness, in the light of consciousness which you are at this moment. So the Sakshi, the witness, knows directly without instruments. The knower uses instruments to know. And the Sakshi and the knower are not two different things. It's the Sakshi alone which becomes the knower through using the mind and the sense organs. Okay, I've belabored the point enough. I think it should be clear. Sat, pure existence, I'm not going to talk about it now. Unchanging, not subject to the changes of birth and coming into being and developing and middle age and the decay of old age and death. The sixfold changes, not subject to that. So that is what we are going to discover ourselves. Remember, at this point it's a claim. Now the process starts in the 17th verse. <clears throat> 17th verse. Atma vinishkalo heko. Atma vinishkalo heko. Deho bahu bhiravritaha. Deho bahu bhiravritaha. Tayo raikyam prapashyanti. Tayo raikyam prapashyanti. Kimagyanam atafparam. He says here, you the Atman, Atman means you, or I, the self. You the Atman, you are without any parts. This physical body and even the subtle body has multiple parts. And we consider them to be one and the same. What greater ignorance can there be? Kimagyanam atafparam. Now, what does he mean here? He has said a lot of things. First, we must understand what is the process going on here. We are trying to find out the true I, who am I really? That's the first stage of Advaita Vedanta. Now, this I, the self, it has to be refined, not physically, in our understanding. Our Rather, our understanding of the self has to be refined. The oil rigs out there, in Santa Barbara, I saw on the Pacific Ocean, there are oil rigs. They get oil. What are they doing? They're extracting petroleum. But actually what they're extracting is not petroleum itself. It's petroleum mixed up with so many other things. And then has to, there has to be a long, complex, expensive process of extracting the various petroleum products from the sludge which, is, uh, which comes up. Yes, crude oil. So from that you have to extract it. You have to refine it. The Sanskrit for ref refining is shodhana. Sanskrit for refining, and in many Indian languages, shodhana. Now, what is done now, what's going to start now is, 
technically called in Sanskrit, Tvam Padartha Shodhana. What does that mean? In the great sentences in the Upanishads, which say that you are Brahman, first we have to do, we have to refine the meaning of the word you. Thou art that, Tat Tvam Asi. Chandogya Upanishad, that's the essence of Vedanta, you are Brahman. But what, how do we start to understand that? First of all, you take the word you and try to refine, we'll try to refine the meaning of the word you. Refining the meaning of the word you means, what does you mean? When you say you are Brahman, what does you mean? Does it mean the body? Does it mean the mind, the personalities, the memory? Or a combination of the two? What you are we talking about? When you say, Aham Brahmasmi, I am Brahman. Which I are we talking about? It is not the unrefined meaning of the I. Yet there has to be a process of refining the meaning of the word I. Or the word you. Tvam Padartha Shodhana. Refining the meaning of the word you. That is starting now. A basic distinction is subject and object. I and this. Whatever we experience as this is not I. In many cases it's pretty simple. The table is not I. I never say I am the table. I am not the glass. I am not even the shirt on my back. But the real problem starts with this skin, with this body. Sometimes I say I, this one. Sometimes I say my body. And when I'm saying, when I'm studying Vedanta, I say, this. So, the problem starts with the body. Sometimes we include the body in the meaning of the word I. In the meaning of the word you. I mean that particular body sitting there is you. Now, if the word I has to exclude everything that we can classify as this, the body also can be classified, easily classified as this, this body. It's an object of experience. In every sense, it's an object of experience. You can see it, you can touch it, you can feel it, especially when it's hungry or when it's sick, you can feel it. Mm. You can hear it, the stomach rumbling. And if you don't take a bath for a number of days, you can smell it. Taste it. So. The body is an object of our senses. It's this. And the process of refining tells us everything that can be classified as this has to be excluded from the meaning of the word I. Remember, we are refining. We are putting the, the crude I, like the crude oil. We have taken the crude I and now we are putting it through the process of, we have the huge Vedanta refinery. We are putting it through that process now. The first thing, we, the, what you have to get rid of, the operating principle is, Anything that you can classify, you can experience as this does not enter into the meaning of the word I. That has to be removed. It's sludge. Removed means not physically. You're not going to take a pincer and extract the real life from the body-mind complex in your understanding, in our understanding. Let's see the this as the this. Why take it as I? Now, They'll ask us to consider three things. Look at the body. They start with the body. The subtle body, mind, it will come later. All the arguments will apply to the subtle body also. But let's take the physical body first. In the Gita, 
Sri Krishna once warns Arjuna against the path of non-dualism. He says, the one difficulty with the path of non-dualism is, he says, avyaktahi gatir dukkham dehavadbhi ravapyate. For those who are identified with the body, the path of Vedanta, of Advaita Vedanta, of the Jnana Yoga is difficult. Now remember, everybody has a body. Even the enlightened person, Vivekananda or Ramakrishna, we see that clearly we can see a body. What is meant is, the existence of the body or appearance of the body is not a problem. Identification with the body is a problem. So the identification with the body has to be loosened. Now see, how we loosen the identification with the body. Consider these three things. One, I always consider myself to be a unit. One, the body is obviously a conglomeration of many parts. Hands and feet and head and stomach and so on. And multiple organs and, below, and if you go deeper, tissues. And if you go deeper, millions and millions of cells. It's a multitude. Somebody told me that the number of bacteria in our body are more than our own cells. So it's a multitude, teeming multitude. And what is our experience of myself, of ourselves? I am one. We never considered that. But we generally consider ourselves to be one unit. I stands for a singular number. That which is multiple and that which is one. Here is a distinction. Contemplate this distinction. Number one. Number two. I always feel that I am sentient. I am aware. I am conscious. And the body is an object of my awareness, of, of my consciousness, of my sentience. I always feel that. Contemplate this. Number three, I always feel I am the same and the body is changing. I am unchanging and the body is changing. You may say, no Swami, we feel we are changing. After all, I was a little kid. Then I was a teenager. Now I am a middle-aged person or I am an old person. Of course I'm changing. Ah, but what has changed? What was a kid? What was a teenager? What was a middle-aged person or an old person? The body. Every change you are speaking about is a change in the body. Oh, I, I didn't know much. Now I am doing a PhD, so I know so much. So I've changed. Ah, but what has changed? What has changed? The mind. That's also an object of your awareness. My, all changes we see are by definition, if you are aware of the changes, you are, you are the one which is aware and the change is something that you are aware of, by very definition. So you cannot be a changing entity, that pure awareness itself, by logic and by experience. By reason and by experience, you are not a changing entity, you are that which is aware of the changes. All the changes are in your body, in your mind, of course in the world outside also. So con contemplate these three things, these three things which Advaita is just, the text is just pointing out. Number one, we always see ourselves as one and obviously the body is a combination of many things. Even the inner body, the subtle body is a combination of many parts. There is the memory, there, is, there are emotions, there are, there's the intellect with its understanding and not understanding and so on. The whole personality is multifaceted as multiple components. 
But I always feel I am one, singular. Number one, you are one and that which is not you, the mind or body is many, many fold. I don't mean you have many bodies. I don't mean you have many personalities unless one has a multiple personality disorder. But the personality itself, even a single personality has many parts and changing parts. So the third thing is I am unchanging and everything else which I considered my, to be myself is changing. The body is changing, personality is changing, mind is changing, memories are changing, everything is changing. So I am unchanging. One, many. Awareness, object of awareness. Unchanging, changing. Think about these three things. That's what he is saying. Atma vinishkala. Atma has no parts. And Deho Bahuviravrita is a conglomeration of many parts. The word Kala, which means part, it also means art in uh, Indian languages, but Kala also means part. And it has a specific meaning in, in Tantra also. Now, what are the, if you want to go in deeper into that, what are the parts of the body? It speaks about the five elements. There is an earth part, Prithivi Kala, earth part is the physical, the, if you just see in a very simple way, look at the body. There is flesh, skin, bones. That's the earth part, Prithivikala, of this body. Then there is Jalakala, Apakala. That is the blood running through our various juices and hormones and whatnot, enzymes, all coursing through this body. That is the watery aspect, the five as the elements. Earth, water, fire, air and space and then we are breathing in and out very important oxygen so that is the air aspect and then there's the heat we have heat is extremely important without heat with the body will die so the fire aspect and the space occupied by this body the space aspect these are all aspects of the body body has five aspects from the five elements there are other colors also in tantra uh, these Time, time is also an aspect. The time of applied to the body is ayu, lifespan. That's also something which is an aspect of the body. So in this way you can speak of many aspects of the body. But I, the observer, do not have these aspects. I, I watch, I experience the body with these objects, with these aspects. So I am without aspects, without parts. The body has parts. Even the subtle body has parts. Now I'm confusing the two. You say, no, I'm not. Yes, we are. When I ask, my, ask you, when you ask me, who are you? You say, don't you see? Here. This. He says, mataparam. What greater foolishness can there be? You, the one. You're saying this multiplicity is you. When I say, who are you? I'm this. And what is this? I. You see the subtle mutual superimposition? Who am I? This body. What is this body? I. So the I is associated with this body and the body is superimposed upon the I. I'm using the language of Shankara. Anyonya Dhyasa. Yes. So there are many Vedanta veterans here. So that's why once in a while a little technical stuff has to be thrown into the mix. Otherwise they will say, what childish talk? Kya wali baat kar gaye? <laughs> speaking, speaking like a child. 
So, Anyuanya Adhyasa is a term used by Shankaracharya, mutual superimposition. It simply means I take the body to be myself, and when you are asked about the body, I say it is I. I am the body, and the body is me. Superimposing one upon the other. Kimagyanam matafparam. What greater ignorance can there be? I, the second aspect, I as consciousness and body, an object of consciousness. And what do I say? I am this body. The consciousness and object of consciousness, we are taking them to be one and the same. Kimagyanam matafparam. What greater ignorance can there be? What greater foolishness can there be? And I always experience myself as changeless. And everything in this body and mind is changing. And I say, who am I? This body and mind. Kimagyanam matafparam. What greater ignorance can there be? What greater foolishness can there be? We are saying it is one and many. We are saying it is one. Identifying the one and the many. Consciousness and object of consciousness. Identifying them. Taking them to be one and the same. Unchanging. How can the unchanging be the changing? How can the changing be the unchanging? And yet we smoothly do that. We have absolutely no qualms about saying such a ridiculous thing. Only Vedanta is pointing it out to us now. Kimagyanam matafparam. What greater foolishness can there be? Clearly you are unchanging. Think about it. If the Atman changes, supposing there is some change you notice in the Atman, if Atman is the self, supposing, let's suppose, just suppose for theoretical reasons, for as a question, suppose I notice a change in the pure consciousness. If you notice a change, does it not become an object of your knowledge? That which is an object of your knowledge is not you. If you notice a change, if you cognize a change, if you recognize a change, it becomes anatma immediately. By sheer reasoning, there can be no change in the atma. Any change that is noticed will become anatma because it's, an, it's something that you noticed. It's an object of knowledge. Kimagyanam matafparam. Though these arguments are targeted at the physical body, they apply very well to the mind also. Though later on, much later on, it, there will come a verse in which seven, a barrage of seven arguments is unleashed to show that we are not the mind. But even these arguments which are directed to the physical body, we can apply to the mind also to see that we are not the mind. Now, what is the process? Advaita Vedanta is pointing out certain facts, which are facts right now. You don't have to become unchanging. You are already unchanging. Recognize it. You don't have to become one Atman. You are already the one Atman. Recognize it. You don't have to become consciousness. You are consciousness. Recognize it. This is the process of refining the meaning of the word I. Or the meaning of the word thou. Thou art that Tattvamasi. Let's just, just touch upon the 18th verse and then we will stop for questions. Atma niyamakascha Atma Atma niyamakascha Atma Deho bahyo niyamyakaha Deho bahyo niyam yakaha Tayo raikyam prapashyanti 
तयोरक्यम प्रपश्यमोर पॉइंटिंग आउट लाइक अ पावरफुल लॉयर एक्सपर्ट लॉयर शंकराचार्य मार्शलिंग आर्ग्यूमेंट्स नॉट टू कन्विन्स अस टू शो अस ही शोइंग इट टू अस look at ourselves we always consider the self to be the controller and body to be the control take it in a very naive simple way all the time i feel i am controlling the body therefore the body is something controlled i am the controller the driver of the car is not the car it's a simple argument but not simple minded it shows what we actually think of ourselves and what something that we don't notice that we always regard ourselves as the controller the operator of the machine is not the machine the driver of the car is not the driver is not the car unless it's the google driverless car <laughs> <laughs> then they are one and the same niyamaka uh, the controller niyamya the controlled they are usually two different things the body is controlled is operated and we are the controller or operator now if there are any philosophy students here they will immediately object this is the old theory of a homunculus you know little man in the mind which is controlling the body mind that theory has been disproved it's it's not a, a serious theory in what sense in a with what deeper sense is atman the controller remember atman here is not like a little man sitting in a you know and the big cranes are there there is a little box on top of the big crane where a man is sitting there and controlling the huge crane atman itself is not like a little man sitting somewhere in the headquarters of the mind and the brain and then controlling the whole body and mind no it is more like the atman pure consciousness gives existence and consciousness to body and mind the technical terms are sattans purti or satta and chaitanyam existence and consciousness are lent to the mind and body and then the mind and body do their thing the atman does not control the mind and body directly no more than a magnet is controlling the iron filings uh, whirling around it so just by the presence of the pure consciousness the mind and body operate that much is, is the controlling no more than that it's not operating in any particular sense in that case there will be serious objections then the atman becomes an operator an operator is always subject to action and change so not in that sense so the atman is the operator or is the controller only in the sense of lending existence and consciousness to body mind a second fact is pointed out simple fact which we are always aware of he just pointing it out the body is always regarded as external to you the self we always feel i am somewhere in there we always feel i am somewhere in there so if i am something inside and the body is something outside how can the two be one he says antar the self is inner and the body is bahya external a simple psychological fact it is something external external to you the consciousness it has to be because it's an object of consciousness the body is an object of consciousness just because just as this is an object of consciousness 
and it is exterior to consciousness. Consciousness watches it or experiences it. In the same way, the consciousness experiences the body. In fact, it's not even true that you are somewhere inside the body. The entire body is an object to your consciousness. It's exterior an object to your consciousness. And you are the subject, you are interior. But interior not in any particular sense that I'm in any particular part of the body. Let's try one little thought experiment suggested by an American philosopher and psychologist, Greg Good. He's in New York. He's a trained philosopher, but he is also a great fan of and practitioner of Advaita Vedanta. Now, he suggests an interesting experiment to see that not only is the body an object of your consciousness, even the feeling of I, we feel I, I am somewhere in there, that's also an object to your consciousness. What is the object of this exercise? To see that not only is the body an object, but I, which I feel right now, I am in this body, that's also an object. You are not that I. That's an, as much an object as this thing. When we go through the ex exercise, you will see the in interesting uh, results. It's quite surprising. Simple exercise, but quite surprising. If you sit straight, and what is the objective? To locate the I. Who am I? Where is the I in the body? You will find it's not there. Um, the exercise will proceed in this way. When you sit straight, mentally draw a line parallel to the ground through your waist, mentally. So the portion below the waist is below that line, portion above the waist is above that line. So a line has been drawn, mentally. Now ask yourself, where is the sense of I? Is it below the waist or above the waist? Most of us will say it's clearly above the waist. If you were asked to choose, where are you? There, below or above? You'll say mostly we'll say above. Now draw one more line through just above the stomach, here, mentally, parallel to the ground. Now if you're asked to choose, where are you? Below that line or above that line? Most of us will again say, I feel myself above that line. Now draw one more line across the throat here, parallel to the ground. And if you're asked to choose, where, are, where am I? Below that line or above that line? Again, most of us will feel, I am above that line, somewhere in the head region. If I'm asked to choose, forced to choose, where am I? The feeling of I. Now, draw a vertical line from the forehead through the nose like this. In the head region, two vertical lines, one on through this eye, one through this eye, two vertical lines. Now, if you're asked to choose, where is the feeling of eye? On this side of the head or that side of the head or somewhere in the central, of, central part of the head. Most of us will sort of feel that maybe somewhere in between the two vertical lines, somewhere here in the central part of the head. Even somewhere just behind our eyes maybe. You'll see most people feel that, somewhere behind our eyes. That's where I am really. If I'm forced to say, now, you will experience the sense of I as a feeling, a sense, somewhere behind your eyes in the central portion of the head, probably. 
Now here is the real question. What is experiencing that I now? Clearly that feeling of I is a feeling, it's an object. In what consciousness is it shining? You see the point of this exercise? Even the sense of I is reduced to an object. The sense of I there, it's, it's something, a feeling located in the head. In what consciousness is that feeling located? That consciousness is the witness. The I which you are feeling behind, somewhere here, maybe you are feeling it, that is the ego. That's not you. That's why Shankaracharya sings something paradoxical. Chidananda Rupa Shivoham in that Nirvana Shatakam. The first line is paradoxical. Nobody notices. Mano buddhi hankara chittani naham. I am not the mind, the intellect, the memory, the ego. If you translate into English, it's paradoxical. I am not the I. Ahankara na aham. I am not the I. I am that which is aware of the I somewhere right here behind the, our eyes itself here in the middle of the head. So even the sense of I, it's just, it's just a function of the mind. The real I is that which is watching this I, or which illumines this I. It's a very nice experiment. Greg Good, he designed this experiment to demonstrate the fact that even the ahankara, the ego, is an object. That to which it is an object is the witness, the Sakshi. All right, let me just give a peace chant here. We have gone pretty, a <laughs> lot of material today. Uh, I hope you have got some good questions. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tatsat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu Questions? Please uh, ask for the mic. Here's. If you just back up a little uh, to the last stanza before the one we started today, um, the question is uh, stanza 15. Yes. The material cause of these two, that is ignorance and thought, is the one without the second. Yes. Um, and we. Uh, Obviously, the verse apparently is saying that uh, that undivided one is a material cause, but it comes out of nations and sankalpa. Yes. Um, and that is beautifully borne out in the example given of the dream world that we construct, uh, which like is out of central casting, it is so real, so material, and yet it is sankalpa alone that produces it. Therefore, we have less difficulty in accepting that this world, which seems so painfully material, is also out of sankalpa. But then uh, th there is this logical question, uh, going back to biology and evolution, uh, as to when the sankalpa started projecting this also believable world, uh, where was it in one-celled organisms or very simple organisms um, did they project? Did they have the sankalpa to project the world? Right. When, when did that start? Yes. I mean, aren't we kind of uh, drawing a line on a slippery slope? Yeah. 
So this uh, harks back to last class, to the 15th verse, which we are not touching upon today, but still. Let me just give an indication of an answer. Here is a deeper problem. If we regard ourselves as bodies with minds and consciousness, then we have already accepted the axioms of reductive materialism. That matter alone, matter and energy alone are fundamental and true. Over time, they have evolved into planets, stars and planets, and they have evolved into bodies and life, and then they have evolved into um, nervous systems, which have somehow produced consciousness and mind, and thus we find ourselves here now. So what, what is fundamental? Fundamental is matter and energy, time and space. But that's the materialistic reductionist point of view, where you reduce everything to matter, energy, time and space. Then only this question will come, how were sankalpas there when there was only a single-celled organism? Why, why only a single-celled organism? Where were the sankalpas when there was no life at all? You can conceive of a, uh, of a physical universe without any life. A lifeless universe, you can conceive of that. So where, where was uh, sankalpa then? Where was it when it was an expanding cloud of uh, particles seconds after the Big Bang? See, we have already accepted the materialistic reductionist point of view then this thing becomes very problematic. But what Advaita Vedanta says is, you, take a, you keep that aside, bracket that point of view aside. That is the Charvaka point of view. That also runs very deep. Take your own experience. Take your own experience. Time and space, matter and energy, bodies and minds all appear and are experienced in consciousness. The idea of a body with consciousness is a story we tell ourselves. But what do we experience actually? Not what we think. Not what we understand from textbooks. What do we experience at every moment? We experience things, bodies, minds, ideas in consciousness. So, Advaita starts with consciousness. Now if you ask for an answer, what will the Upanishads or Vedanta say to, to your question? They will say, answer goes like this. Saguna Brahman, Ishwara, which is power of Maya, is eternal. All jivas and their sankalpas remain in a potential state in Maya. When creation starts, Saguna Brahman or Ishwara projects this universe of five elements. And then your planets and your process of evolution can take, up, take over and bodies will evolve. And the jivas with their sankalpas, who are in the potential state in Maya, they take up bodies. Where did they get those sankalpas? In a previous cycle of, uh, of creation, existence, crea uh, crea creation, existence and destruction. You see, the Hindus believe in an infinite cycle of srishti, sthiti, pralaya. So these sankalpas, these jivas are beginningless. That's what I said last time. They're beginningless, but they have an end. When knowledge comes, we, we come out of our jivahood, individuality, into the infinite. So that's just an outline of an answer. Don't worry, those answers will come up. What has happened in the 13th, 12th, 13th, and 14th, and 15th verses is an outline of what will happen in the rest of the book. Question? Yes. You have a question here? No? Yes, there's a question. Hello. Yeah, it's not exactly a question, but uh, we're talking about this uh, thought experiment some time ago. 
So uh, I think uh, most of the times, or most of us will uh, think that we are uh, inside our eyes or right behind our eyes. Yes. Maybe because eye is the sensory organ which uh, sees basically the outside world, or, or yeah, which sees the outside world. And most probably that's why we will feel that, okay, that the eye feeling it goes just behind our eyes. Whether it will be interesting to see actually, I mean, if a blind person, we ask them whether, uh, where do you feel that perception? Maybe it will be in the ears, on the periphery. True. But you know what was my point there? The point of the experiment was different. Yes, it is true. If you ask why, do the, why is the feeling of eye in the head? Because maximum amount of sensory perceptions work in the head. You have got the ears here, the nose here, and of course the eyes. We are mostly visual in the sense of taste here. So experiences seem to be localized in the head. That's why we have a sense of eye in the head. But the point of the whole experiment was to show that our sense of eye is equally an object. Wherever you localize it, you localize it here or here or even in the chest, eye. It's still an object. It's an, ex it's an experience. What consciousness is experiencing that? That is the question asked. So wherever you localize it, just localize it and see it's a thing. Just like this thing or this thing. Question? and the witness so if the um we the witness is a w the consciousness yes right the knower becoming enlightened then is that the knower under knowing that it is really the witness very good way of putting it i'll put it i'll rephrase it a little bit becoming enlightened is this right now when you say who am i the answer will be, I am the knower. I am the one who is speaking here, talk, listening here, experiencing here. So I am the knower here. And being enlightened will be shifting the reference of that I to the witness. If you ask I, who am I? The I refers to the knower now. Enlightened is shifting the reference of the I to the who am I? I am the witness. Witness of what? Witness of the knower. Mm. Yes. Witness of the knower. That's perfect. Yes. Yeah. And remember, it is that very witness which also acts as the knower. But then you are free of the knower. So the yeah. shift is Yes, first of all, become aware of something as like a witness. We are not even aware of that now. We, are not even, we do not even consider the possibility. Become aware of something as a pure, unchanging consciousness as a witness, and then know that to be the, your real nature. And that witness alone, after all, where does the knower get its consciousness from? You cannot be a knower without consciousness. So the knower, which has all these first-person experiences of knowing, it gets its consciousness from the witness. It's the witness alone in association with body-mind which becomes a knower. In reality, it is the witness. Okay. We'll come to you. Um, is not then the witness and Atman, are they not synonyms? Good question. Are witness and Atman, are they not synonyms? Sakshi and Atma. Yes. Chaitanyam, Chit, Sakshi, 
चिती अदर वर्ड्स ब्राह्मण आई कम टू दैट लेटर आत्मन ऑल्सो चैतन्यम चित सो दे आर ऑल सिनोनिम्स now one point here, very good point so that, that is the atman and atman is really the sakshi sakshi is the real atman this sakshi or atman is to be realized as brahman of the upanishads it's it's also brahman it has to be realized when you say tat tvam asi tat refers to that brahman which this sakshi is in reality the refined meaning of the word thou and the refined meaning of the word that will point to the same nirguna brahman that is the approach taken in traditional advaita vedanta in sanskrit tvam padartha shodhan tvam padartha shodhana will lead to the lakshyartha of tvam padartha and tat padartha shodhana will lead to the lakshyartha of tat padartha both of them mean nirguna brahman satchidananda in english the refined meaning of the word that the refined meaning of the word thou leads to the pure existence consciousness bliss which is attributeless brahman in that sense they are identical don't worry about it it's, it'll all come slowly <laughs> we have a question here oh you had a question yes swami it seems um am i being too semantically oriented to be confused about when you're saying um the experience like the atman is the witness that is experiencing is it seems like action is becoming there's no action in the atman and isn't witnessing an action i'm getting right. a little right so make this distinction witnessing though it it looks like a verb it is not being used as a verb here it's witnessing is as is like illumination it just shines and because it shines everything is is illumined by it so it illumines the actions but it is no action no it it illumines the actions it illumines the absence of actions it illumines objects it illumines the absence of objects like it illumines your day to day activities in the waking state it illumines your dreams in sleep and it illumines the absence of the waking state it ab- absence of the dreams in deep sleep so the both the presence and absence of things and actions is illumined by the witness even when there is nothing that nothingness is illumined by the witness so it's the illumination that enables an action to be yes and not only that it's that illumination which enables the knower to know things by what light do we see by what light do we hear by what light do we think what light do we speak can upanishad starts with that it is the pure light of the atman or the pure light that is the atman pure consciousness which through the mind and body enable us to see and to hear and to speak to be a knower and a doer and it's choiceless all choices yeah that is choiceless awareness all choices come in at the level of the mind one more point about semantics here just today before the class i was thinking about an interesting thing you see philosophers of language will have an objection here they will say you are forcing the words awareness consciousness knowing witness into meanings which they are not supposed to express philosophy of language will say that 
this question, isn't witnessing a, an action? Because normally witnessing is an action. If you ask a person, how do you use the word witness? A witness is a person who goes to court and stands in witness of something. He witnessed something. It's an action. When you use witnessing in terms of not an action, in technically you're committing a fault. You're forcing words to do things which they are not meant to do. You're using words in the, out of their context. So all the words that you're using, consciousness, sentience, awareness, these are not the senses in which they are used in common language or even in philosophical discourse, the way you are using them in Advaita. So this is a doubt. This is a, a, a technical objection, but a powerful objection. What is the answer to that? When I was thinking about it, the answer is very simple. It is these words are part of the English language and a part of the discourse which is mainstream today. You don't have words for it. But Sanskrit has many, many words for it. The pure consciousness, Sanskrit has many words for it. Chit, Chiti, um, Chaitanyam, Sakshi. These are very precise words used in Sanskrit. The difference between technically, Vachyartha and Lakshyartha, very precisely defined. So they knew about it and they had words to deal with it. It's just that we don't have words in the, in the modern parlance, in modern day-to-day -day language and modern philosophical language because we are heavily influenced by the, the materialist, reductionist worldview. That's why we don't have those words. That's why we have to make do with words like consciousness, sentience, awareness. We can see, those who know Sanskrit will see, these words are similar but not exactly the same. And the words like Sakshi, difference between Sakshi and Pramata. Very clear difference in, in uh, Sanskrit, in, in Vedanta epistemology. Pramata is a knower, one who uses instruments of knowledge, pramana, to get prama, valid knowledge, about prameya, objects of knowledge. Very precise. And what is the power behind it, the consciousness behind it, the illumination behind it? Chaitanyam or Sakshi. Again, clearly defined. Very precise. Separate. The pramata is an, engages in action is a doing word. It does things. Sakshi is not a doing word. It does not do anything. Yes. Last question. One comment, Swami. Hermann Count Kesseling, the German philosopher, says yes. that there are more than ten times the words in the world of the spirit than in Sanskrit than in English. There are more than ten times? Ten times the number of words hmm. in Sanskrit for in the spiritual realm than yes. in English or even German. My question is, you said sakshat ikshate sakshi. sakshi. Can you explain what that sakshat means? Sakshat means uh, directly. When we experience something, consciousness plus mind plus eyes enable me to see this glass of water. Now the eyes are what are called karana, instruments. External karana, External instruments, eyes. Internal instruments, mind, antakkarana. And the consciousness operates with these instruments to experience, get an experience of this glass of water. It is not sakshat. It depends on these, these instruments for getting an experience like this. Whereas the directly our sukha and dukkha, happiness and misery, I am happy, I am unhappy, direct feeling, feeling of pleasure, of pain, of knowing something in the mind, 
that is directly illumined by consciousness. That direct illumination is called sakshat ikshate, sakshi. Without using any instrument. The absence of all thoughts in deep sleep, that blankness, how is it experienced? With what eyes do you see that darkness? With what mind do you think about that darkness? Nothing. And yet we have experienced it. Every night we experience it. So sakshat ikshate, directly we experience. In fact, I'll end with this. Eskimos are supposed to be, I don't know how true it is, Eskimos are supposed to have 20 or 30 words for snow. Various types of snow and ice and uh, various textures, textures and so on, various uses, various aspects of snow, because it's a great fact of their lives. It's the dominant fact of their lives. They live in an icy region. In the same way, the ancient Indian philosophers, they continuously dealt with these ideas. So they developed an entire language to deal with these concepts over thousands of years. So these are very well, very well defined terms. Yes. Only an expert can you tell you, the one who deals with these things. Yes. Thank you very much. And we shall continue with this refining of the meaning of the word I in the next class. Thank you.